So seeing the fractured teas done well in Breaking Bad allowed me to really understand it in a much broader context. And so for me, that's exciting. That's like when I start jumping up and down. I'm like, oh my God, I finally cracked this thing. It took that. me years, but I finally cracked it. And nobody nobody else cares. Like, just, I'm the only one who's like obsessed with this stuff. Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this episode is about the TV show that made me want to be a writer, Moonlighting. Dead bodies and all, I did have fun. Me too. So Alan, why don't you introduce our guest? So uh, this week we are joined by one girl in all the world, uh, slayer of prologues, speaker of chipperish, <laughs> New York Times bestselling author, Lonnie Diane Rich. Welcome to Hollow Ground Storycast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for those of you who don't know, Moonlighting was an ABC comedy drama that ran from 1985 to 1989 about the Blue Moon Detective Agency. Maddie Hayes, a former model in financial trouble, is the owner of the business, and David Addison is the chief detective. The duo solve various mysteries each week and try to keep the business solvent, all while trying to resist a passionate attraction for each other. Glenn Gordon Karen, the showrunner and creator, said that the show's premise came to him while watching a performance of Taming of the Shrew. Production of the show was notoriously late, taking 14 days to film an episode that was scheduled for seven. Karen was given a lot of leeway by ABC and was a perfectionist. Various production problems also came from the two lead stars, Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. Sybil's pregnancy with twins was not incorporated into the plot and led to an awkward shooting schedule. And Bruce Willis's budding movie career demanded his time. So Lonnie, how did you first encounter Moonlighting? I first found Moonlighting over the summer. It had started in 1985 as a mid-season replacement. So the first season was like six episodes. And over the summer, I was home one night. I happened to catch the premiere, the movie premiere on, you know, on ABC as it was rerunning. And I instantly fell in love with it. I just, I loved everything about it. It was wonderful. I watched it every week. I taped it. I had the VHS videotapes all time. I had the timer ready to go so I couldn't accidentally miss it. Everything. I was so into this show. Um, and I remember telling all of my friends about it and they had no idea. And I was like, yeah, it's with this this woman, Sybil Shepard, and then this guy, Bill Willis. I remember I, I thought his name was Bill Willis for the longest <laughs> time. Like, you know, and eventually I figured it out. Um, but it was, uh, it was one of those things, like one of those moments in your life where you are so struck with something. It is so powerfully speaking to you. Um, that you just never forget it. Like I have such a vivid memory of, you know, being downstairs in our like little living room area in the basement watching this show and just loving it. What do you think about it spoke to you? Was it like the snappy dialogue or like the stars, the way it was shot? What, what was it that grabbed you? 
I think it was everything. I think for me, it was it was that romance. I mean, Moonlighting is the reason why I became a romance writer. I mean, that in Days of Our Lives, you know, which we can talk about on another one of these. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. But, yes. But I, I loved the the romance. I loved how funny it was, how snappy it was. I mean, at that time, we had a lot of these, like, you know, detective shows like Scarecrow and Mrs. King and Remington oh, Steele. Yeah. And it was a thing where you'd have this, you know, this guy and this girl and they liked each other and you'd see the romance develop. But nobody was as edgy and and funny you know, and had the energy that Moonlighting had. It was, it was such, you know, such a strange moment in time because it, it kind of changed the way that those things are done. It, it moved the, you know, the, the boundaries on that a little bit. Um, and I like that. I like those shows that come in and kind of move the needle you know, and push what they're doing on TV into a new and different space. A lot of things that Moonlighting did, it was the first time we'd ever seen anything mm -hmm. like that. Totally. So when you say that it made you want to be a writer, was it sort of like, as you were watching it, you thought, I want to make something like that? Or was it more like it planted a seed that germinated later on? Well, I think... It it did a lot for me what what a lot of products uh, do today, uh, properties do today for people when they write fan fiction, right? You know, a lot of people don't necessarily, who write fan fiction, don't necessarily want to be writers, but they just want to live in that world for a little while longer. There isn't enough story available for them, so they create more story. And fan fiction when I was a kid was not a thing. Like, you, nobody talked about fan fiction. That was, I mean, I'm sure there were people doing it, but nobody talked about it. So I remember, like, the first thing, I just, I had only those six episodes. I had them on reruns over the summer. I was waiting for the new season to come out. And I was like, I want more of this show. And so I would go into my little notebook and I would just write scripts, you know, just by hand um, and write dialogue for them and think about things that they could do and, and what would happen. And so for me, I think that was where it really started. I had always kind of been a writer, like through childhood. I was, I was in the gifted program when I was a kid, not because of my grades, but because of my writing. Um, and, uh, and so it was one of those things that like, I'd always, I had always kind of come easily to me and I did it in school as was required and it was fun, but it was never something that I did like really outside of school that much, you know, it was just this show made me want more story in that arena. And I think that there are there are remnants of moonlighting and and especially David Addison in so much of, of my books that I've written, you know, like as an adult, there's moonlighting is is a clear influence on on what I've done. Oh, absolutely. When I watched it, you know, I came back to it for this and I was like, oh, this is so Lonnie. Like the the way that <laughs> his sarcasm and how snappy it is and the way that they like they talk over each other and just how tight the dialogue is. And I've heard you talk so many times about how dialogue is not just people talking, it's actually doing something in the story. And this show is so that like when they are in each other's offices, it is not them just you know, expositing or something like that. It is a duel. It is. I mean, it's verbal jousting. Like he's got a point of view. She's got a point of view. They have this conflict and it's always, I want to take this case. I don't right. want to take this case. And the kinds of cases that one of them wants to take in one episode will be completely flipped in the other episode. And you're like, none of this is consistent, but you know what? I don't care because it's so 
much fun. And I mean, them talking over each other was something that just was not done. And they did that. They broke the fourth wall. I mean, they did so many things, you know, in this show that were so interesting and so bold. And I think part of that was because Glenn Gordon Karen kind of, he, you know, he was young. He was like in his, I think, mid to late 20s when he got mm-hmm. this show. And he hadn't been kind of beaten down by the Hollywood <laughs> system yet. He'd written like a couple of Remy's and Steel's and he was like, sure, I'll, I'll do this show, you know came up with this idea and did it. Um, But he was so young, like he had a lot of bad habits, definitely had a lot of bad habits. There's a lot of things in Moonlighting that he shouldn't have done. But it was because he lacked that kind of self-consciousness and that discipline that he was doing this this genius stuff that nobody had ever seen before. So I think that was kind of the price you paid for it. And when I was researching like in IMDb and Wikipedia and stuff, like I'm not an expert on Moonlighting or anything, but one of the things that they did say about that was kind of unique about the production was at this time when they gave him that gig, part of the reason that they gave somebody so young and inexperienced that gig was because they weren't getting like the licensing rights from an independent production studio. They were doing it in-house at ABC. And so it was a lot cheaper all around for them. And they were like, we don't care what you make as long as it's about detectives. Like do whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. And so he just had like the purview to kind of go nuts and nobody was really watching over his shoulder. And it it took off because it's so singular. So I know that Bruce Willis was not famous at all before Moonlighting, right? Like Moonlighting Mm -hmm. was sort of how he got his start and then transitioned into movies. Um, But what about Sybil Shepard? Was she well known at this point? Um, I think she was fairly well known. She'd done some movies. She'd been a model. Um, she she was sort of you know just one of those pretty blondes, mm-hmm. you know that that like people kind of had had an awareness of um, because she'd done some stuff. But she was the big star. Like at that time, it, the name was Sybil Shepherd, and then there was this dude Bruce Willis that <laughs> you nobody mean Bill knew. Willis. Sorry, <laughs> Bill Willis. Yes, there was Bill. Uh, and uh, and so like nobody knew who he was, but he was the thing. Like he was what got me into this show. Like Sybil Shepherd, I've never really felt a connection with. I've never really like liked her that much, you know. Um, and but her with him. And what he brought to it, it was so fantastic. And I have to tell you, like, I in in my romantic life have have been, you know, swooned by a, many a David Addison. It never works out well. It never ends well. But man, I fall for that, like that fast talking, funny, you know, like you know, laissez faire guy. I, I love that. Um, but it's not the kind of relationship you want to have because the kind of guy who can do that is usually not the kind of guy who's like very you know honest and straightforward and emotionally (laughs) connected like he's going to give you trouble that is going to be you know one of those wild bucking bronco rides but i I mean i think it could be worth it in some circumstances (laughs) at least for temporary you know yeah at least for the feeling in the moment and the story afterward oh yeah it's fun though i dated david addison all over the place in college never ended (laughs) (laughs) i think the show bears that out it's not like he's a great guy or anything in the show, but yeah, he is the main draw. I think he's all the energy is there. And we, you know, we've been going along with um, your other show, big strong. Yes. And I was thinking from big magic about like the trickster uh, spirit and he's totally oh, a yeah. trickster, right? Oh, David Addison's complete trickster, total trickster energy. You know, um, I mean, you can see it in that pilot episode, mm-hmm. right? You know, when he tricks her constantly. You know, when he takes the watch from her, you know, and gives her his, the watch he got at graduation. When he's in her house, when she comes back from her date, 
you know, and introduces himself as Papa Bear, you know, like, um, <laughs> right. and pretends he's doing the dishes. Like, he is, he has absolutely that very fun, you know, that mercurial kind of trickster energy. And I think that as a romantic hero in fiction, that actually can work out because we do see him in certain parts of the the overall story arc towards seriousness. And when he does serious stuff, you know, when he's like, he is there, he is excellent at that, you know, because some people can be really funny, but they can't deliver the drama and the emotion, but he can really deliver the drama and the emotion, like the episode where his brother comes to town, right? Mm -hmm. And he's so like, it's the first time it's the, uh, it's the uh, season opener for season two. And um, his brother comes to town, he's got this really strained relationship with his brother, and then his brother and Maddie starts sort of having a thing. And that obviously bothers him a great deal. Uh, But he delivers that emotion so powerfully that you can see that there's a lot of real stuff going on underneath that facade, that trickster facade, you know, and I absolutely love that combination of, you know, he's light and he's funny and he takes nothing seriously, except he does take things seriously. And when he does, you know it. He's very competent. Like he tells her in the pilot, like I'm the best. And you're kind of like, whatever with this guy. But then he really is like, he is always on top of the mystery. He's always the one that kind of cracks the case and leads them forward. His instincts are really good. Mm -hmm. He's just so, it seems like the way that they wrote him, he's just so smart that he's like bored, Yeah, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, he's absolutely that guy. You know, and I like it when he says we lost money. Of course we lost money. We were supposed to lose money. We lost money. Great. But now you turn around and you say you want to make money. We're going to make money. Great. Like he had that. I I will, I will quote this thing verbatim. Like I know this. It is in my brain. I've been watching these episodes so much. Um, But I mean, I love that he does have that capability that, you know, he was supposed to lose money and he did. And he hired like what always cracks me up is that they have absolutely no money, but they have a full staff. There's never less than nine people people there, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what exactly are you doing with all of these people? I mean, they're just sitting there doing nothing. They're partying all day, you know, and it's kind of funny. At the same time, I'm like, how do you possibly justify that you're, you know, when you're supposed to lose money? Yes, having nine people on the payroll not doing anything and no, no cases to solve. That's fine. Um, But you know, when they're struggling, and they're talking about how, you know, they have no money for anything. And I'm like, well, then, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate that these people need a job, but you just, you let people go. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if, there's, if there are no phones to answer, if there's no legwork to be done, you don't pay people to do something you're not having them do. So I always thought that that was, it, it was one of these things that like it existed in a reality that is not reality. And they, they, you know, doubled down on that when they started breaking the fourth wall, having them look to camera, you know, make jokes about uh, there's pages missing from my, you know, my copy of the script, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, you know, so they, they always like, nobody ever expects moonlighting to be like a documentary you know it is not about what it would really be it's about how that experience feels which is what fiction always is you know it's never about reality it's about believability and even when they didn't have any money that all these people it was emotionally believable like you were there with them it was, it was really good so i had actually never even heard of the show until lonnie first started talking about it on i don't even know what context um yeah, uh, it, it comes into every show yeah. I've ever done. I, I don't think there's a single show I've done where I have not at least mentioned Moonlighting once. Yeah, so basically it first got put on my radar just from listening to Lonnie talk about it. And then when we started this podcast, I was like, I know what we need to do because <laughs> this podcast <laughs> is essentially a structure that we designed so that we can podcast, uh, Alan and me, about what we want to podcast. And I was like, 
I know that Lonnie wants to podcast about moonlighting, but she doesn't have the proper vehicle for that. So like we built the scaffolding, come, <laughs> come hang out here. And thank you for that. I can't talk about moonlighting because moonlighting is not available. There was a brief window, um, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or so where the, the DVDs were available and you could grab them, but it's not available on streaming. It's not, you know, on reruns anywhere. And so I don't want to do a show about something that people right. can't watch because I always feel like, you know, there's, there's no point to it. But as I was watching, I mean, I have all of the DVDs. I have everything. I watched the whole run in prep for this, you know, like the, from beginning to end again. And, um, and I was thinking like, there's so many things that I would love to talk about. I'm um, both that they did well and that they did really, really poorly. Um, and I'd love to go into it in, in detail, but I just, I can't because there's nobody who can, you can't access it. You know I mean? I think some of it's on YouTube, you know, so you can grab some of it there, but there's no real like reliable place. This needs to be on Netflix. It needs to be on Hulu. I don't know why. I mean, I think it, it's probably comes down to music licensing, which was the big delay with getting it on DVD. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of, I mean, a lot of it's from the sixties, mm -hmm. a lot of it's, you know, that kind of thing, but they have like one episode that opens up with, um, with the Rolling yeah, Stones, yeah, yeah. you know, oh, and wow. like getting the rights. <laughs> You know, getting the rights. We have a lot of these TV shows that sort of fell into this um, this sort of crack in the sidewalk before. When you license this stuff for a show as it's airing, you license it for the airing and you license it for the, the syndication later. But at that time, they had no idea that technology was going to do what it did, that they were going to be streaming, that there was going to be the Internet. It didn't exist yet, you know. Um, so they couldn't have, have predicted that. So to go back. So for these shows to go back and get all of that licensing again, it can sometimes be almost impossible. And you will see shows that have different songs, you know, like layered in, but that means that you've got to hire an entire editing team to come in and layer in different mm -hmm. songs. And, um, and that with, with Moonlighting, because their song choices were so specific, um, that's not as easy to do. So I think that becomes a really huge challenge in getting this on you know, on streaming, but it, it needs to be. And I hope that someday it will be. And if that ever does happen, I may do like a short run just talking about Moonlighting because there's so many interesting things there to talk about. It's a fantastic show. It was really great <laughs> to come back to it. I remember watching this show as a little kid with my mom and I actually sent her a bunch of text messages like in preparation for the show. I was like, I'm not crazy, right? Like you watched this show and she's like, Bruce Willis, are you kidding me? Yes, I watched every second of that show. <laughs> Good woman. Right? Good woman. <laughs> so, like, I would stay up and and watch it with her. I think it was on Sundays or something. Yeah, eventually it was. I remember actually, like, when I was watching the pilot for this episode, Sybil Shepherd walks into the detective agency and you see Miss DePesto for the first time, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like it's her, and she's gonna rhyme when she answers the phone. Like I know what's gonna happen, and she did. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" I totally remember this. Like I loved. Yeah. She was like my favorite when I was growing up watching the oh, show. She's I love her. Elise Beasley is amazing in this show. And if you know, if you have the DVDs, you can see all this behind the scenes stuff. And you see Elise Beasley, like, you know, Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis, and they are what they are, and they're big things. And then Elise Beasley, they just do an interview with her alone, and she's just like, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with these people. You could just see that she was like, because there was so much, there was so much stuff behind the scenes. Like, they were fighting all the time, and it was drama, and it was just all this kind of, it was a crazy, crazy set. And in one of the interviews, Elise Beasley is talking about it, and she's like, this happens so rarely that as an actor, you get an opportunity 
to do something this, you know, groundbreaking, this different, this good. And she's like, and how, and she didn't mention names, but she's like, how some people could look at that and complain <laughs> is wow. beyond me. And I was like, you are a class act, Beasley, because this woman, you can just look at that and say how she must have every day coming into work just been completely flummoxed by these people. You know, I'm not throwing any shade at anybody. I mean, it is putting on a television show is so hard and it's so demanding. And when you have somebody at the helm who also, you know, I mean, Glenn Gordon Karen, incredibly, incredibly talented guy, but, you know, was way in over his head. I mean, obviously could not produce 22 episodes in a season. You know, the biggest one they had, I think was 18. Right. So, you know, he got this, this, you know, this thing that he couldn't control that he didn't know how to run. And part of the, part of what made Moonlighting what it was, was his inexperience. But this is the dark side of that you know that he didn't know how to handle the set he didn't know how to handle his stars he didn't know how to handle everything that was going on he didn't know you know he just was like so far in over his head because that lack of experience when you're you know involved in a tv show it, it the the amount of work it takes to get one of these things done in eight days which is the typical length of time that a tv show has to like get it together you know to do an episode um that is is crazy and if you are not on top of every detail if everything isn't going like a you know like a swiss watch then you know things fall apart really quickly and uh, and i felt you know like i kind of i felt for them like it's it's really hard you get all of that talent with glenn gordon karen but you have no control you know the whole thing is wild and once that precedent is set that's what you live with for the rest of the run of the show. So um, Moonlighting is, you know, a lot of people take the cautionary tale of Moonlighting that you don't have your characters sleep together because then that kills the show, which is absolutely not what killed Moonlighting. That was not the problem with Moonlighting. Um, but, you know, there's a behind the scenes cautionary tale too, that if you give somebody with that kind of talent, you know, the full run of a show, but with that little experience, then you're gonna have this kind of problem. You need to make sure that somebody is there holding the reins and making everything, you know, pulling it together, so. I wonder how much it would have changed things if he had had more control over the show. Like if if it would have reined in the personalities of Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis, you know, just like being on a, a more well-oiled machine would have led them to be like, okay, we'll put our personal issues aside and just like get this done and be professionals. If, you know, it's sort of like as professionalism falls apart in one area, it can lead to things unraveling in others. Oh, yeah, I definitely think so. Because if you know, like, I mean, think, you know, not that they're children, but like in any, you know, organization, you have somebody who's running the show, right? And so the sh like everything comes from the top down and like in any organization, in any group. And if people know that they can get away with a certain kind of behavior, they will get away with that behavior. And if other people see them getting away with that behavior, then they will also try to get away with that behavior. And if it's handled, you know, properly, um, then you can keep it under wraps, you know, you can keep it from getting out of control. But once it gets out of control, it's really hard to ride that horse back into the Absolutely. barn. You know? And it and just to clarify, like for in case people don't know, there were like you say that, you know, he delivered 18 when he was contracted for 22. There would be weeks where that slot was like the show was supposed to be there and it wasn't there. Like there was no show. The show was not ready at all, or they were waiting yeah. until the last minute with, you know, like a courier running in with the tape to the head office to put it in. And it's like <laughs> 10 minutes late. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, 
Sorry, like that scene on Glow where that absolutely. is absolutely the, la- the last episode of Glow when he's like running the VHS yep. tape or whatever down to. Oh, yeah. They do that in broadcast news, too, because that's a thing that happens like where it's absolutely at the last minute and somebody is running desperately down the hallway. We also had a situation where a lot of times the shows would be short. And so they do like a cute little intro segment that they would make up at, at the last minute just to just to fill the time, you know, Um it was, it's insane. It's insane. Like this is not how a television show, like a major studio television show is run. Like this just doesn't happen. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch, you know, from, from just, you know, the perspective of the story and the fiction itself, but also from this meta perspective, you know, coming from television production, that is what I went into. That is what I studied when I was in college is television production. So I've never worked on like, you know, a big, show like a big studio but like i know generally how it goes and i also know how much work it is like it is an incredible amount of work to do that every week and then for all of the people who are not bruce willis and sybil shepherd on that show like that becomes so challenging because everybody else doesn't have the option to like throw a hissy fit and go back to their trailer. Like Mm -hmm. they've got to find a way to work around all of that insanity. And I cannot even imagine what that must have been like. I wanted to talk about the meta humor a little bit. Wait a I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing here. You're here because we're welcoming people back to another season. Ha. You're here because the network wants us to welcome the viewers Double back. Ha. You're here because Lou told you because to do say it. Because say it. The network says tonight's show is too short. The network says every show has to be one hour long, not 59 minutes, not 61 minutes, well, 60 minutes long, and we're a minute short. Great. Now the whole world knows. Mr. Thermopolis, and do you know Mr. why Ehrlich, we're a minute short? Karen, get my because agent on the phone, fast. please. Not because I'm talking with this. Because you're talking when I'm talking. Maybe we could have a show that lasts an hour. That's it. I've That's had it. That's it. If, if the, the producers, producers want to welcome the viewers back, they can do it themselves. Cut. How's that? Sorry, Sybil. Sorry, Bruce. Too short. Too short. And you know why, don't you? Don't even think about blaming so much. Not because I'm talking too fast, because you're talking Start when the I'm show. talking. Start the show. Start the show. Welcome back. It was something that I didn't remember at all. And I was so shocked by it when it came up because for whatever reason, uh-huh. like my memory of moonlighting was, you know, that it like was very episodic. Like it always reset at the end of every episode and that it was basically like leaning on the sexual tension of these two characters. And that's kind of like all it did week to week, which having rewatched the show now, like is not true at all. And it was very innovative. One of the like crazy things is this fourth wall, like meta humor type stuff where every once in a while, Bruce Willis will turn to the camera and be like, well, we know this guy didn't do it because there's 12 minutes of episode left. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, like you don't, you don't do that. (laughs) Like at the end of the Christmas episode, like they, they walk off the set. It's snowing inside. They, (laughs) they walk off the set to sing like an entire Christmas hymn with the entire production, you know, like cast and crew. Everybody and their children, right? And, and family like, members too, well, right? And little soap flakes. And it was kind of fantastic, them, like, though. Like yes. I was like, "Oh, this is like really sweet," and it makes you like emotionally invested in the show in a way that's you know like odd. Like you feel like, "Oh, this is like my nice little family that you know that I can come to each week uh, if they're there." Like I can't depend on them to be there, maybe, but you know. <laughs> What do you think about the meta humor? Does it bother you? Does it, are you like, ah, this is not a good choice or was it like something that intrigued you? 
I think that the, you know, the, the fourth wall breaks I felt were fun and they were innovative, but I do think that the show paid a cost for that because as soon as you acknowledge, like, especially again, it's all about the believability of the world, the believability of the mm -hmm. fiction, right? You know, as soon as you do that, you become super conscious that this is a story, you know, and you're not experiencing it the way that you would ordinarily experience it. And I think that if you're doing that within the context of pure comedy, that you don't lose that much because there isn't all that emotional weight. But we had a lot of moonlighting that had some serious emotional weight to it. And every now and again, there would be like a moment between Dave and Maddie, like there's this one moment where she goes, I don't give a flying fig about blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, I got a problem. I don't know what a flying fig is. And she looks at the camera she goes that's okay they do but they were in the middle of this like i i know the whole thing by heart i swear to god um they they have this thing they were in this moment that was this like you know kind of they were looking each other in the eyes and it was this sexual tension and then it killed that tension when they you know they look and they flirt with the audience as well you know um and it kills the reality of it and people were so invested in the relationship between dave and maddie because those emotional moments when they happened were so powerful they were incredible and when they look at the camera it breaks that and the more and they did that more and more and more and more as time went by and then you have like in season four you know you have like this this whole big there's this really emotional separation between mm -hmm. the two of them you know they've got all of this stuff going on she's gone off to chicago he's madly in love with her he finds out she's pregnant it's like this whole big thing and then we have these two ridiculous episodes called cool hand dave where he gets arrested and then he's like in jail and it's this ridiculous stuff that doesn't have any they have a musical right. number in it i mean it's just it's crazy <laughs> so all of that kind of breaks those huge powerful emotional lines that they have going and um and it's really a shame because they had they had lightning in a bottle and they they let a bit of it out every time that they did that so i mean i, I like it on one hand because it's bold and it's interesting and it moved the needle on what people could and would do on on you know primetime television but at the same time, it does, it leaks some of the power that you've built up. You've built up and you've charged this power and then you're just kind of letting it leak because of a joke mm. you want to tell. I think that's a really good point that you have that the fourth wall breaks work much better in the comedic moments than <laughs> in the dramatic moments. Um, and also, I wonder how much Joss Whedon watched Moonlighting at all because I see a lot of the similar kinds of things in Buffy, but with a much lighter touch, right? So in Buffy, they'll just say something like, oh, Don's in trouble, it must be Tuesday, or something. You right. know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's hinting very strongly at that meta structure, but not, you don't look in the camera, it must be Tuesday. You know, <laughs> right. like waggle your eyebrows right. or whatever. Exactly, exactly. But there's also like, I was just watching an episode of Buffy today because I'm always watching an episode of Buffy. Um, and there was this thing where, you know, they were like, hell's a poppin'. And she's like, yeah, usually, you know, it usually comes to a head about every May. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> she, so she made that, that comment. And that can be, those kind of things are winks. You know, and I mean, they're winks at the audience and they're winks at the structure, but they don't break the world of the fiction, you know, um, and, and in a lighter moment, you don't pay as, as dearly for that as you do when things are, are really heavy and emotional. Yeah, that's you know? never happening, like in the middle of an intense scene between Buffy and Angel. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, Joss Whedon would never do that because he, the thing with Joss Whedon is that he is meticulous about building the Mm -hmm. world, you know, and building this space that you can believe what's happening. Doesn't have to be realistic, has to be believable, you know, and, um, and you can believe that work. Um, and, uh, and, but Glenn Gordon Karen, I think was just doing crazy stuff. Was just right. because he could. Like, I don't think that he really had this, you know, this wider understanding of what the cost is. Because everything that you decide to do in a story, you get a benefit and you get a cost, you know. And so you have to balance that out and having a consciousness of what that cost is and saying consciously, yes, I understand that this is the cost for doing this thing. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, that is deliberate. I feel like Glenn Gordon Karen was just a kid with a couple of six shooters just shooting totally. randomly into the air. Yeah. Just being like, like where it lands, it lands, you know, and that's part of what made it genius. I mean, sometimes I have to say, like, there are creators that are wild and undisciplined, and and something about that does create a space for this sort of transcendent genius, you know. So, you, I mean, yeah, he did crazy stuff. A lot of it worked, you know. A lot of it was nuts, but it worked, and it was beautiful. And it was wonderful. I mean, the Shakespeare episode, you know. It was wild and it was completely outside of any context, any reality for Moonlighting. It opens with a kid, you know, we see a kid watching TV and his mom sends him upstairs to study his Shakespeare. So this is something that is happening entirely within the head of this kid. That's how we're, we're seeing it. That's the, the construct for the story. Um, but yet it is, it is so brilliant and, and uh, hailed to this day as one of the most groundbreaking episodes yeah. of television ever, you know? Um, but it's one of those things that wouldn't that had somebody thought about it a little bit more may not have happened so you know on the one hand it's like yes this is a valid criticism here are the things this is the cost that you paid but on the other hand it's like well you know if we hadn't had that wild genius you know um then what might we have lost if they had been more disciplined or more mm-hmm. aware even of what they were doing. So I think that there's, you know, there's a cost and to everything, you know, and you've got to take a look at it and say, is it worth it? Now Moonlighting, you know, was, was brilliant for the first, you know, three seasons, um, did really amazing, amazing work. Some of it was crazy. We always had the crazy chase scenes and all that was nuts. And a lot of it was really, really funny. Um, but in the end, you know, it, it went off the cliff because of all of the same things that made it genius in the beginning, you know, because of all of those same influences. Um, and, uh, and I think that that, that ends up becoming, you know, like you, you pay for it, you get this thing, but you're going to have to pay a cost for it. So do you feel like you learned that from watching the show? Like you kind of internalized it as a writer and you were like, okay, when I write, I'm going to like, I'm going to be funny, but I'm never going to, cause I always hear you stress that. And I wonder if it came from this. Oh, no, that came from years and years and years of study. Like I when I started writing, I had no idea. I was Glenn Gordon Karen. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I just I just sat <laughs> down shooters. for NaNoWriMo and I was like, I'm gonna do this thing. Right, exactly. You know, I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna write this book. And then I wrote it. And then to my surprise, I got an agent with it. And then to my even more extended surprise, I was publishing it, you know, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't know what I'm doing. So um, it was at that point that I started studying story because I wanted to understand what it was that I was doing. 
And the more I studied story, the more I got to understand it, the more fascinated I became with it. And so now I, I you know, I look back on Moonlighting or like the, the really formative texts, you know, of my young life before I knew anything about it. And I know that I had an instinctual understanding of it. Like I felt these things, but I didn't have, I didn't have that processed into intellectual language. So now I'm, I've been spending the last 15 years of my life processing all of those responses that you have when you're watching something and you feel something and you kind of have a, an instinct about it, but you don't know how to explain it. I have spent you know, the last 15 years of my life dedicating myself to trying to understand that. So my ability to speak about it this way now comes from that comes from 15 years of study of like deep, you know, nerdy, dedicated study to something that, you know, I had no idea was ever going to pay off in any way. It was just something I was fascinated with, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but as you as you get a deeper understanding of story and how story functions, then um, then you can understand these things, but you have to be able to, to process them through like an intellectual space. And when you're responding to something like moonlighting the way that I did on just this purely emotional level, you know, the intellectual thoughts and stuff were not conscious for me. But going back, I remember having that feeling when they looked in the camera. I remember having that feeling like, huh, you know, and it's when you're, when you're engaging with a story and you have that, there's a moment that makes you go, ah, and you don't know what it is. Like, that's when I get fascinated and I want to go back in to figure it out, you know? Um, but at the time I had no idea. And when I was writing, you know, I had no idea. Um, I, I gradually learned more and more about story as I was writing all of these novels. So by my later novels, I had, I had a much, much greater consciousness of story. Uh, but in the beginning, I had no idea. And there's stuff that honestly, that are, that's in my books that was so embedded in my consciousness and my subconsciousness that I didn't even realize I was playing it. Like there's a line in one of the, one of the shows where he says, I hate to be the sugar in your gas tank. Right. right. And I actually have that in one of my books. Oh, wow. <laughs> no idea that I it from moonlighting. It came to me in that moment. And I mean, that happens from time to time, like things, you know, within your experience will affect will will show up in your writing, you know, and moonlighting shows up in my writing in ways that I wasn't even conscious of at the time I wrote it. But then I go back and watch that episode. I'm like, oh, no, I had a character say that once. That's funny. You know? <laughs> yeah. I love that. So I feel like this is the perfect point since we didn't do this at the beginning. If you're interested in hearing more about what Lonnie has to say about storytelling and structure, you should definitely check out her podcast, How Story Works. Um, and I know Alan and I have referenced it on the show several times before, um, but for sure, go check that out. It's on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you can find that everywhere. That's that's where like all of this nerdy fascination. I'm I'm just putting it all into how story works for the people who are interested in that because that affects everything. Like all the the pop culture criticism I do comes from that understanding of story. And every time I engage with a new story, I learn something new. You know, like a new concept becomes clear to me, and then I see it, you know, repeating itself in other stories throughout. Um, but that's that's where I get super nerdy about this stuff. It's fantastic. <laughs> we use it constantly as a resource inside it. All the time. Oh, we love it. good. I'm glad it's yeah. helpful. Yeah. It reminds me of in the last episode, the quote that you pulled, uh, Anya, from the book that we read, Wild Seed, where, where the antagonist was talking about he didn't understand, like he knew with his mind, but he didn't know with his heart. And it's like you knew with your heart, mm -hmm. but then you had to take a while yeah. to learn with your mind. And it's, that's like the work of life in a way. It's so strange that like <laughs> it is. 
from one to yeah. the other. There are things that we know intellectually that we can't process emotionally and we have to like pull that in. And then there are things that we understand emotionally, but we haven't processed intellectually. Absolutely. And then you have to run it through that process as well. So we're constantly going back and forth to the place when you can understand something both emotionally and intellectually. Um, that is when you have mastered whatever that little thing is. You know, even if it's just a mm -hmm. concept, you know, that's that's when you finally like, you know, for me, it's like I'm, I'm constantly trying to crack these concepts. I'm, uh, you know, I see something and I'm like, okay, what does that mean? You know, and then I work at it to crack it. And one of the, my favorite things that has, I've just recently cracked, which has nothing to do with moonlighting, but I'm going to go off on a tangent because what the <laughs> go heck. Um, this idea of the fractured keys, right? There was this concept that I used to talk about a lot called the time jump, right? Where you take a slice from the, um, from the climax of whatever the story is that you're telling, you put it at the front and then you're like 36 hours mm -hmm. earlier, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And I've been calling it a time jump for years, but I've never really cracked it. And then finally, I watched Breaking Bad recently, the whole run of Breaking Bad. Um, and Breaking Bad does that, but when they do it, they don't take the most exciting moment where somebody's like, you know, buried alive, or they've got a gun to their head, or they're hanging on a cliff, you know. Um, they would take a quiet moment from the end of that story and put it at the beginning. And that quiet moment wouldn't necessarily have a greater context. It was just something that would make you ask a question. And because you're thinking in terms of that, you know, it ends up actually being beautifully, you know, um, expanding the the storytelling of that episode. And so it was then that I that I understood that not as a time jump, but you know, I renamed it to a fractured tease. Because what it is, is it's a tease at the beginning, and it comes from another spot in the story. So that's the fracture. Um, but the fractured tease, I've always hated, and I've always felt it was poor storytelling, because it's weak storytelling, because it puts us in this position where we have to like, you know, build back up to that climax. But you're just teasing the the viewer instead of like starting out with something that's interesting enough to hold their uh, their attention. So seeing the fractured tease done well in Breaking Bad allowed me to really understand it in a much broader context. And so for me, that's exciting. That's like when I start jumping up and down. I'm like, oh my god, I finally cracked this thing. It took that. me years, but I finally cracked it. And nobody, no, nobody else. Great. Cares. Like just, I'm the only one who's like obsessed with I this love stuff. That. So it's basically like. The difference between the fractured tease done well and the fractured tease done poorly is are you using it to sort of artificially amp up excitement yes. or to mm -hmm. cast things in a different light and sort of like subtly open people's minds in different ways? Absolutely. And I had never seen it done well, because it's always done in this very insecure way. And to see it done well, that's what got it. So I, I have to write Vince Gilligan a letter and just thank you so much <laughs> for, you know, helping me, helping me crack this thing, even though you don't know me and you don't care. Um, but for me, it was it was so it was so great to be able to finally crack that. And so a lot of things that, you know, I've been cracking through moonlighting um, have been really fun for me. And moonlighting is is one of the things that helped me really understand that idea of the fourth wall and what it means to break the fourth wall, you know? And so being able to do that, I think, um, is, is really fun. So even when Bruce, like when Bruce Willis, I, I of course associate everything with Bruce Willis on this, um, when Moonlighting, you know, does these kind of wild things that sometimes don't work to its benefit, it is still, you know, teaching us something by the way that it does it. Um, and for me, that's, I think that's also like always an incredible thing to be able to get out of any story. So we've touched on this a little bit, but let's 
talk a little bit more in depth about Maddie and David and sort of like their attraction and them as like a a template for other romances going forward. Oh yeah, no, they've ruined so much of romance. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The influence of Dave and Maddie specifically, but also like Sam and Diane, all of your slap slap kiss couples um, have, uh, and you know, I mean, I've I've been writing like, I've been writing romance fiction for, you know, 15 years. And because of that, because of my, my work in, you know, teaching people and doing workshops, I end up getting a lot of material to read and critique for people. And one of the things that, um, one of the bad habits that has become just so prevalent in romance writing for a lot of people is this idea of, Mm -hmm. oh, he's so annoying right you know that they meet this couple meets and you know we're supposed to think they're just so great and then they have all this great chemistry and he's really hot and she's really hot and they're going to be hot together and all that kind of stuff and then the only sense of romantic conflict is just oh he's annoying you know and they have to have that you know that fight and that bicker the thing that makes a, a couple work you know, is not the fighting and the bickering, you know, it's not that because it's, it's how well they work together. When you have a couple that works well together and when you've got a, a, you know, a mystery show where we've got detectives who have to solve it in 45 minutes, right. Um, They're going to work. They have to work well together because if they don't, then, you know, you're just going to end up with nothing. So it's, it's how well they work together that really makes it work. Now there is a certain spark to the banter and to the romantic banter, but that's not romantic conflict. You know, that's, a different thing. And so when you feel like in order to have a couple, you are absolutely required that they fight and hate each other. Um, that's not it. That's not what you need. You know, the spark and the passion and all of that is really great. But what you want, what makes a couple work is how well they work together. And then when they fight, that's because of the essential romantic conflict. The conflict with Dave and Maddie is that these people are so different. They're so incredibly different. Like, how are they ever going to get along? And, um, and then, that brought in a lot of that romantic conflict and it was something that was powerful with Dave and Maddie. It's powerful with Sam and Diane and cheers, you know, because they are at the core of who they are Mm -hmm. so incredibly different, but that's actually builds an obstacle that you have to get over because when you see people fighting all the time, you're like, I don't want these people together. They're going to make each other miserable, you know, which is what happened with Sam and Diane. What happened with Dave and Maddie? Eventually they made them made each other miserable. So it's really not the great path to, you know, a love story of the ages. It's not going to be a romance that we can believe in, that we can feel good about when they're together, unless they've both arced and changed out of that. Um, But it is not a requirement for couples, you know, in in romances to find each other annoying. You know, it's that's one of these little vestigial tales that sort of moonlighting is put into the like romantic, you know, um, the pool out there that people keep drinking from. And it's not working, you know, to mix eight or 12 metaphors yeah. in there. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's not good. Like you have to understand where that comes from and you have to do it right. Just making people hate each other so that you can have them hate each other is not valuable, you know? And if you make them that different, that they're going to fight like that, then you have to pay the cost for that later by arcing them together towards something that, you know, when it's over, we can see them having a happy future together. Cause that's what you want at the end of a romantic story, you know? Um, and, and you, you, you really do. Again, it's like all about that. 
you have to understand the price that you pay for the things that you do in those stories. And the price that we pay with Dave and Maddie is that they are so different. They don't see anything the same way. And in a lot of ways, they kind of hate each other. So all of that leads us to something that like, this is not going to be a happy romantic pairing for these people unless somebody changes, unless somebody, you know, arcs. And they would arc them a little bit and then arc them right back. And it just never really took. But because the fighting was so hot, because that worked so well and it was so engaging, a lot of times we'll find romantic couples in movies, TV, and books written that way without an understanding of what that means you also have to do. You're taking responsibility for also creating this romance and making it work despite that, you know, but the best romances are the ones where people work well together. Absolutely. So you think people kind of took the wrong lesson away from this romance that basically, um, so we'll have some articles uh, linked in the show notes Um, And I think everyone is pretty much on the same page that the moonlighting curse is bogus. Mm -hmm. That like the idea that you will ruin your show if you get your two leads together, that's Mm -hmm. completely false. Well, everybody agrees on that now, but it has ruined a fair number of television romances. I mean, the X-Files for one, you know, although there were a lot of other influences. (laughs) screwing up the Mulder and Scully relationship. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of things where they do that, where the bones, you know, I think they held off on getting those two together for like ages, you know, past where it would, and they worked really well together. I mean, they were really Uh good. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, for the most part, everybody agrees, but that's because we've just seen so many television shows have such a fear of the cautionary tale that was moonlighting that they went in the opposite direction. You have to understand how the narrative forces are working underneath the surface of all of these things in order to be able to address them, you know, and to be able to work with them. And if you don't understand it, if all you know is they had sex and then the show died, you know, (laughs) you've got correlation that is not causation. You know, they had sex and then you put Maddie in Chicago for eight episodes and had her marry somebody else and had her be pregnant and not tell David about it and then have her tell David that it wasn't his kid. But then we find out that it was his kid. And, you know, and if it wasn't his kid, it was Sam's kid. And why is she not telling Sam that she's carrying his child, if that's the case? And then she marries somebody else on a train that she's known for an hour. And the whole thing is so insane and so stupid. That's what killed your show. It wasn't that they slept together, but people saw they slept together and then the show died. And they make that association without looking deeper into the text to find out what really happened there. Or I think another way to look at it is that basically what killed the show was not that you can't write people after they get together, but just that this writer didn't know how to write people after they got together, right? right? Like if all you know is the slap, slap, kiss, kiss, then... Right. And that they really failed to arc the characters into a place where they could be compatible that like yeah that if if your romantic conflict initially is that they are attracted yet incompatible then at some point your long-term arc has to be about making them become compatible Yeah, like arcing them toward each other, you know, making it work. That's what you do with a romantic story. That's what you want to do. But I think that what happened is that, you know, like moonlighting crashed and burned so fast 
and so hard from such a height. It was so successful. It did so great that you see that. And this is the story that, you know, TV writers tell their little TV writers when they tuck them into bed at night, <laughs> like don't have them sleep together, you know, um, because it's terrifying. And, and this is like, you know, people are telling these stories, but like a deep textual analysis of television is something that just wasn't happening at that time. Like people weren't looking at it. That's why, that's why they were like, okay, here, give me a guy and a girl and a detective right. show go and we'll pay you millions of dollars for it. We don't care about it <laughs> because all they saw was the success of the guy and the girl, and the detective show, but they didn't understand that textually underneath that the success was we have here a romantic pairing where two people are working together. Well, that's what does it. You know, that's the thing that people want. And so if you understand that, but at the time, like nobody took TV seriously. Nobody thought about TV in terms of its storytelling. Nobody was analyzing this stuff. You had like TV critics who were like, yeah, I like moonlighting. No, I don't like moonlighting. And that's it, you know? Um, but this deeper textual analysis of how the narrative was functioning in these stories just wasn't being done. So they saw this, you know, they took correla correlation as causation. And then that's what happened. And the, the effect on television for years and years to come until people started looking at television with a much, much deeper critical, you know, thought applied. Um, everybody just thought that that's what it was. So yeah, like now we all are like, well, it's obviously bogus because people have looked more deeply into the storytelling. But at the time, nobody was analyzing it that way. So they just knew people like detective shows with a hot guy and a hot girl, <laughs> right. do it, you know? Um, and they, they weren't looking in any deep, any more deeply at what was actually happening in the storytelling there. Yeah. When, yeah, when I was rewatching the show, I kept thinking of uh, Star Wars, actually, with um, Princess Leia and Han mm -hmm. Solo, where you have like this very capable uh, in charge, like, you know, in Princess Leia. And, and then mm -hmm. here with Maddie, like she's very, you know, focused and driven and like she has it together in a way that he absolutely mm -hmm. does not like he's yeah. a mess. Uh, and, you know, Han Solo's like that. He's a lout. But he and he's kind of lazy and he just does what, his own thing and whatever. And like you say, you know, they there's these sparks, there's this slap, slap, kiss, kiss, there's all this energy and it's really fantastic, but they are incompatible. And what I actually liked when I was thinking about this watching the show was that in Star Wars, they actually acknowledge that. Like when you come back in The Force Awakens mm -hmm. and you find out that, yeah, they had a kid and yeah, uh, they never really stayed together because they just couldn't make it work. And yeah. I love that actually. So, you know, I, I don't know JJ Abrams ever watched uh, moonlighting. I'm sure that he was absolutely aware of it with the, you know, TV guy mm -hmm. that he is, but um, <clears throat> it was nice to see the, the acknowledgement of these incompatible people just because we wanted them to get together. doesn't mean it'll work out necessarily. Like the narrative work wasn't done Right. To make it believable. Yeah, you have to do the work, you know, in the same way you have to do the work in a relationship in real life, you have to do the work to make it work narratively. I think JJ Abrams actually does have a very good, I don't know if moonlighting is part of it, but he does have a very good consciousness of how these relationships work and how important it is in the narrative mm -hmm. to honor that. You know, um, and one of my least favorite tropes is the, oh, the woman, she's got it together. She's living like an adult. She's, you know, all this, but she's so uptight, you know, she's right. an ice princess, you know, and he's so cool and he's so funny the way he comes in drunk to meetings, you know, and we're supposed to look at her and be like, oh, you know, why are you so uptight? He just came in drunk. 
Like, God, let a guy have some fun. <laughs> right. Boys will be boys, you know? Um, and that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy about that trope. Because, yes, it is nice to have opposites attract, you know? And and we all love our roguish, you know, male hero. But it's always the woman who ends up, you know, like, carrying all of the weight of that and being the one that everybody hates because she's like, oh, no, you actually have to, like, run a business and mm-hmm. be a reasonable adult, you know? Um, even in the episode My Fair David, right? You know, where she's, uh, they make a bet and she's like i bet you can't be an adult for one week right and then he's behaving like an adult only in front of her but you know (laughs) behaving like an adult and then everybody's mad at her because she's making him grow up and i'm like okay no not fair that sucks the only reason any of you get a paycheck and can pay your rent is because this woman is making this business work so you know (laughs) slow your roll a little bit there um but everybody's so upset because you d daved him and he's not dave anymore and we love dave and dave's great dave's a party you know um and meanwhile maddie is the one who's making sure that your lights are still on so i i kind of hate that that trope because the woman is you know, all of the weight is on her to make everything work and to make everything come together and to do all the stuff that he doesn't want to do because he's having a great time being a rogue hero, you know? Um, And I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie. I love me some Han Solo. Obviously, (laughs) I love me some David Addison. Like, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm as susceptible to it as anybody. But it's not a trope that I find uh, particularly enlightened or helpful in any way. Yeah. And in a similar vein, I feel like the show does have a lot of depictions of, I think, what today we would call toxic masculinity. Oh, um, and in the show, it's really just framed as sort of like, you know, boys will be boys or like, you know, the inevitable showdown of like men versus women, feminism versus reality toxic masculinity being a perpetual child right this idea that uh, boys will be boys i mean it's right there like boys will be boys honestly is one of the phrases that infuriates me more than anything because it excuses behavior that is absolutely inexcusable um but the the whole thing that like it's so isn't it cute when he does these things, isn't it cute when he objectifies women? Isn't it cute when he, you know, sexually harasses Maddie in front of the staff? Like, isn't that adorable? Oh, he's so sweet. Let him blink his eyelashes at me and I'm going to fall for it, you know? Um, And we see that a lot in cultural storytelling. And what that does is it reinforces this idea that it's cute when men behave like boys, you know? Um, and I personally don't find that. No, I mean, okay, I'm lying. Obviously I do. I love it. I love Han Solo. I love <laughs> David Addison. Like it, it sickens me, but I do. Um, but I think that there should be like a price to pay for that, that we shouldn't act like that behavior. It's adorable, you know, and they're very funny, but when it comes down to the serious stuff, when it comes down to like push comes to shove, Han Solo steps up. Han Solo mm-hmm. is a man, you know, like when it comes right down to it, you know, at least he's not as, as egregious, you know, an example of this is like maybe David Addison, you know? Um, but I think that it's one of those things that again, like you pay a cost for everything that you do in narrative. And part of that cost is this idea that we're making that kind of toxic masculinity cute. Isn't it cute when, when boys don't grow up when it's this Peter Pan syndrome, you know? And like, yeah, on TV, it may be cute. Marry that (laughs) and tell me how cute it is a few years later, you know? Um, so, so it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging thing to kind of deal with because, you know, yeah, it's adorable on the screen. It isn't he fun, but when it comes right down to it, like he's got to be a man when being a man is required, you know, and she's got to be allowed 
to have her moments. Like she has, you know, when she decides uh, toward the end of season three that she's feeling reckless, that she just wants to go out and get laid, you know, and have a good time. He is so horrified by that. So horrified. The judgment that he puts on her because she wants to do on one weekend in three years what he has done every weekend of the entire run of the show. Like that I find (laughs) appalling, you know, and, and the way that we are, you know, made to look at her like oh my god what a whore you know um and then in the end when she sleeps with somebody it's somebody she's known from her childhood her whole life it's somebody safe it's somebody that she's had this relationship with forever you know it's not a one night stand you know and and so we wouldn't even go there with her you know we just we made it look like she the fact that she might even want to do it she was so slut shamed for that in that episode and you know and that drives me crazy yeah, the uh, the intro scene to the dream sequence always rings twice. Drove mm-hmm. me crazy, I think, in a, a little bit of a similar way. So they're arguing about a historical murder that they just heard about. And this woman was having an affair and then her husband died. And they're arguing over who they think killed the husband. Was it the woman or was it the man she was having an affair with? Sad. What's that? That murder. Sad to think that an innocent person had to die just because she fell for the wrong guy. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. There's a page missing out of my copy of the script. What do you mean the wrong guy? They never solved the Flamingo Code murder, Maddie. It is entirely possible that he was the right guy and she was the wrong girl. Yeah, sure, I suppose. What do you mean you suppose? I suppose she could have killed him, but I'm sure he did it. How can you be sure? Common sense. Common sense. Common sense. There's no talking here. You can talk to no, me. No, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. And you want to know why I can't? I'm on the edge of my because seat. Because of the way you look at things. You look at everything like a woman first and then a person second. What does that mean? I said what I meant and I meant what I said. You don't look at a situation objectively. You don't look at a situation like an individual. You look at a situation like somebody appointed you guardian for your whole damn sex. That's not true. What do you mean, whole damn sex? See? Addison, for your information, I think of myself as an individual first and a woman second in that order. You just keep saying that. Maybe you'll talk yourself into it. What does that mean? You just accuse a man of murder. Of murder, Maddie. Based on what? Based on the fact that he was a man. Addison, clearly he had more reasons to kill him than she did. Name one. Her. He wanted her. He had to kill her husband to have her. That's crazy. Why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? What? You heard me. You're an animal. And you're a sexist. What? You're a sexist. You know what a sexist is? Of course I know what a sexist is. I'm looking at one. So am I. You think the boyfriend killed the husband just because he was a man, and that makes you a sexist. I am not a sexist. Oh, you a I sexist. I am not a sexist. sexist. I'm not speaking to you. R2. I am not. I'm not. And no, I'm not. Not. Not another word. Not another sound. Not another peep until we get back to the office. And they end up in this argument, which is like well written and and fun in that way that a lot of their you know, fights and shouting of each other are fun. But his argument is basically like, you're sexist because you see gender. I don't see gender. Right. I'm gender blind. <laughs> and it's just like, it was like so frustrating. It was like, yeah, there's no way that would fly today. You can tell that this is a show from the 80s. It's like very much of its time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Dear listeners, if you decide to go and watch Moonlighting, uh, there's a lot of really fun moments, but you also have to keep in mind that like, it is definitely a product of its time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, written predominantly by men. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were women on the writing staff, but I mean, the, the, the people that were conceiving stories for predominant, predominant 
you know, people who were telling mm-hmm. stories at that time were white men, right? And there are certain things like when you have privilege, and I'm a white woman, so like I am not going to claim I have no privilege. I have tons of privilege, right? When you have it, it is so hard to see it because that's just the way it is for you. You know, that's just the way life is. Like you go out and that's how the world works, right? Um, so when you write from a position of privilege and you are not woke to that privilege yeah. yet, this kind of stuff gets in there. You know I mean? And the thing is that it was in the culture. I mean, it didn't, you know, Glenn Gordon Karen didn't come out, you know, all evil, like I'm going to ruin the culture. Like he was just, he just came from the ground from which he sprung. Like that was the way his, his experience was. And that was how he saw the world. Um, and so now, you know, in 2017, we have, we've woken up quite a bit, I think, not all of us by any means, but to a great extent to where we're much more sensitive to those kinds of cultural messages that we are sending as read. We're, we're sending these messages as though this is the way it is, not this is the way some people see it, you know, or fail to see it, you know? Um, so when you look back at, you know, stuff that was done, the TV shows in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you see all the cultural presumptions that ride underneath everything that's happening within those stories. And they are told by people of privilege and people who have a lot of blind spots to this broader context of stories, which is why, of course, we need diversity in our storytelling, because we need to be able to see stories that are from different perspectives that opens everybody up and that opens us up to better stories, which to me is, is you know, like what I'm after. Like I want, I want, you know, social consciousness, but I want better stories. And I think that the more diversity we have in our storytellers, the more uh, interesting stories we're going to be told. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who was a toddler when the show aired, it's like, it's hard for me to understand that context really, aside from yeah. knowing that it's, it's not the context that I understand. But like, I wonder, was it good that they had this argument about feminism on TV. Like there are probably people who heard that argument who maybe hadn't thought about feminism or like what it is like to actually live your life as a woman in society and how that might be different if you're a man. But then there's also people who are watching that and thinking, you know, David Addison has a really good point. I think she (laughs) is the sexist one, you know? And so it's like hard to know. How much are you helping versus hurting in that situation? And I and and looking back at the show from 2017, it's hard to know what the writer's perspective even was. Like, did they think that both sides were legitimate, or uh, were they trying to show that, like, yet again, he's sort of an immature fuck up? I think that they were trying to show it from both sides. I mean, I think that they genuinely thought he had a point there. You know, that she was sexist because all she saw was that it was a man and because it was a man, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, So I don't know. That was the impression that I got from it. That was the way that I read it. Um, is that they were actually saying that, she, oh, look, you're so feminist, but you're actually the one who's sexist. See, I turned that around <laughs> on you. Like, I think that there's part of that there, you know? Um, and then, of course, his fantasy goes into this whole, you know, I mean, basically vagina dentata thing, you know, which is all about how the the woman, you know, lures the man and then she's, you know, eventually going to, to you know, bite off his penis or whatever, because that's the big fear, right? Men that's are afraid right. of women because we're all afraid have of these that. powerful vaginas, <laughs> and, you know? Um, <laughs> 
and it's so scary. They're all afraid of that. No, I think I think you have been. I think there's there's some of that in um in a lot of the misogyny that's Absolutely. out there that men are afraid of the power that women have over them, and so they they do what they can to uh, to eliminate that power. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's just human you know nature that's that's been that way for for ages. Whenever the the party in power is feeling themselves threatened, yeah. they immediately attack the powerless. <laughs> because they might have a tiny little bit of power and we just simply cannot have that. Um, so there's, there's tons of discussion to be had on that on a greater like societal, you know, um, space. But I think that what, what our stories do at the time that they are released is that they simply reflect us back at ourselves. So while we can sit here and say, oh yeah, David's being a big jerk and a man child, David did not, you know, form just out of nowhere. He is very much a product of the culture in which he was introduced and extremely popular. So the thing that we need to critique is not necessarily the work itself or the people who did it because they grew up, they were part of a culture. They were just reflecting a culture back at us. You know, the thing to critique is the mindset that we have that creates that where we can just presume that this is the way it is, that boys will be boys and isn't that cute without questioning it. Um, and that's where, you know, where we really need to critique. So when you look back at these stories, you know, you use these stories to critique the broader culture at the time, but it's really not necessarily the fault of these people who are simply reflecting that culture back at us. You know, I mean, the problem was with us in the first place. Yeah, and I think the episode actually really holds up in another way. In that the way it's structured is really interesting, right? So they sort of find out about this murder, and then they both have dreams that show what they think happened. And so in Maddie's dream, it was the woman gets seduced by this lover into a relationship that she didn't necessarily want. He's like really um, not respecting her, her consent in a lot of ways. And then he kills her husband, even though she doesn't want it, right? And then in David's dream... She's the one who uh, seduces him and basically like gets him to do her dirty work for her. And yeah. and it's it's like a really powerful illustration, I think, of how our perspectives influence the way that we see the world and how different point of views can really narrativize the same set of facts and lead to completely different conclusions. And like in 2017, that itself is a really powerful message. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Because none of it's evidence-based. Yeah. Neither one of them have any information. Either of those stories could actually be true. Yeah. But what is most interesting is the way that we are, you know, we are creating this internal narrative for each of them about what happened based on their perspective and the way that they see the world. So that, I think, is one of the most powerful, you know, um, examples of how we take reality and reality is actually incredibly malleable based on the stories that we tell about it. Like the stories that we tell ourselves all the time form our reality. And when we don't engage with, with actual demonstrable reality, we can fly off into spaces mm -hmm. that are not even related to what actually happened, you know? Um, so I, I find that to be really interesting because the stories we tell, like in the way that, that, you know, when we have these stories in the 1980s that are being told, it reflects our culture back at us. The stories we tell also convince us of what is true about the world. And sometimes we need to take a critical look, not just at the stories that we are being told, but at the stories that we tell ourselves. 
I I really like on that same kind of note the meta layer that's going on in that episode too because when they have the dreams they're cast in black and white they're from the time you know that that the murder happened which is like in a more glamorous past but at the same time it's like referencing a filmic tradition that the show I think pulls a lot of its energy from like the romantic comedies of the 1940s or like Humphrey Bogart, you know, like David Addison has a lot of like Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart dryness to him sometimes in my opinion. Oh sure. Well, he's even wearing the white suit from Casablanca, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the show is like saying something in that episode of like, these are the influences of the head writer this is like what I'm, these are the detectives that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of movies that I'm talking about where men were men, where women were women, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is like my paradigm. And then I'm infusing it with, you know, with this modern, like, Oh, we're going to talk about feminism. We're going to talk, you know, a powerful woman who runs her own business. And this is all like kind of enlightened. And when you look at it, you know, 20, 30 years later, you're like, Hmm, Maybe not so enlightened as you as you might be thinking there. Uh, <laughs> right, you but know. it moved the needle, though, right? I mean, you can't, oh, totally. you know, like Rome yeah. wasn't built in a day. Like, I mean, Moonlighting did move the needle a little bit. I mean, I think that it was taking almost as many shots at feminism as it was being a feminist story, you know, um, because Maddie, for all of her strength and power and capability, was a complete hot mess. You know, and which actually Mm -hmm. makes her much more interesting as a character. But, you know, but you have to balance all of that stuff, too. And I think that you, you know, you have to have a certain consciousness, but you also only have the ability to reflect back what you know, what you understand. And and having those stories, you know, to be able to tell them in that way, I think, um, gives us something to talk about, gives us a place to start. And fiction is where we go to to understand reality. You know, so I mean, that's 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 where it all starts and and the ability to agree or disagree with whatever the messages are that are being told. And I think we're much more likely to think critically about it today than we were back then. Mm -hmm. Um, That's an incredibly beautiful thing. So, you know, so I just I want to refrain from being like super like, oh, my God, these people were so terrible, you know, because they weren't. They were just reflecting it back, you know. But I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff that they did in there that actually speaks really nicely to the power of our own personal narratives. Totally. And yeah. And, and I didn't mean to like necessarily attack it, but just to say that like, Oh, I don't think you are. I've, yeah. I've been attacking. I, <laughs> that back. I think he's making a commentary on like, yeah. you know, the, the kind of um, films and stuff that influenced yeah. him and his vision. And then we get to look back at even like all of that stuff. Like you're seeing through all these different lenses, all these different stories. And right. You're going even further back culturally, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's great. So do you have anything else that you want to say about sort of like moonlighting and what it means to you or, you know, how it influenced you about about writing? Or we could go just into your experience recommending this to other people and talking about our list of episodes. Yeah, I think I've hit, like, I've actually talked more about Moonlighting now than I ever have in years. So it's been really, really <laughs> fun. <That's great. laughs> so I think, I, I think I've hit most of the things that I, that I really wanted to talk about. Um, but like, yeah, I, I recommend Moonlighting definitely to people because I think that if you're interested in television at all, if you're interested in television history, I mean, it is such a huge, huge moment in television history. And one of the things that I absolutely love about it is that this is one of the first instances in which we had a showrunner writer 
at the helm. That didn't happen a lot. All of the shows prior to this sort of stage in uh, in television where a producer would come up with an idea. I want two detectives, make them fight, go, you know? Um, and that would be it. And then somebody would just make that happen, you know? And the writers would just write whatever the producer comes up with. The producer came up with the idea and the writers wrote it, you know? But the producer was the one who was at the helm. Like, you know, you look back on all like the Norman Lear shows, you know, the Gene Roddenberry, you know, mm -hmm. um, like all of this stuff um, that it was, it was all about the producer having the idea and then the writers were like these monkeys at typewriters who just made it happen you know um this is where we see this transition into this space where glenn gordon karen as a writer was just as famous as well maybe not just as famous but he was right up there he was on the covers of the tell of the you know magazines people were talking about him as an entity now we're really used to that now we've got our aaron sorkin our amy sherman paladino our jj abrams you know everything is about who is creating this story right when we talk about television shows now like vince gilligan right you know from breaking bad like we talk about the creator the writer you know, and that was something that just was not part of television prior to Moonlighting. Glenn Gordon Karen came in and made such a splash as a creator that that's when we have this transition. We have this transition from producer led to showrunner creator. You know, this is the thing that made Shonda Rhimes possible. This is the thing that made Chris Carter possible with uh, X-Files, which started just a couple of years after that. Um, we have this transition. Joss Whedon happened because of Moonlighting, you know? Um, Moonlighting is is the transition point where we became conscious of we want a a creator who can write, you know, who knows these stories, who can who can delve into them, who can make them more engaging, rather than like an Aaron Spelling, you know, who comes in with an idea and has like twelve shows on the air that all do the same kind of nighttime soap <laughs> right. opera drama thing, you know. Um, Dick Wolf. It's yeah. it's you have somebody who's actually at the helm. Yeah, it's actually like writing the stories, and that is a completely different thing. That is a sea change in television, and that is when television turned into what it is now. I mean, at the time, it was not regarded as you know, it was a popcorn. It wasn't regarded as like real storytelling, you know. But now, I would say the 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 primary, the prominent force and storytelling in our culture now is television. That's what we all go to. Um, so I find that to be a really interesting, you know, thing that Moonlighting did and that Glenn Gordon Karen did. Uh, we saw some of that happening, but that was the real moment that that hit, you know, that that became a, a thing. And then people started looking, television studios started looking for the showrunner creator you know, the person who could, who could run it through. Um, so I thought that was really interesting about Moonlighting. I love that, that it has that place in television history. That's really interesting. Um, but, you know, recommending it to people, I absolutely do. Um, nobody can get a hold of it. Right. So it's kind of pointless to, because you can't get it anywhere. You know, I think if you're interested in the history of television, it is an absolutely pivotal show with which you need to be familiar. Um, and, uh, and I think that just as, as a fun, as a vehicle for fun you know it has a tremendous amount of fun involved so there are a lot of good reasons to watch moonlighting i absolutely do recommend it if you can get your hands on i mean maybe on ebay there are some dvds that you can get your hands on but i mean if you want to watch moonlighting you have to work for it you have to really want to watch moonlighting it's not something that you can just kind of like passively do you got to put the legwork into it um, but i think that anybody who really wants to understand television who wants a greater understanding of storytelling who wants a greater understanding of romantic comedy and how to to do it and how not to do it. Um, Moonlighting is a wonderful text to study. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, I'm sort of new to the 
TV analysis story <laughs> thing. But and you know, like Buffy is sort of like my has been my starting point up until now for thinking about yeah. modern television. Uh, it was really cool to sort of go back and look at this and be like, oh, all of these things that I thought, you know, like Buffy was the first to do or like yeah. and X-Files to to some extent before that. It's like, OK, well, Moonlighting did it before X-Files and Buffy. And, mm-hmm. and as an evolutionary biologist, it's also cool to sort of like see see that phylogeny oh, sure. fill in all of the missing links. Yeah, no, I mean, everybody's standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, there are so many things, nothing that exists now would exist if it weren't for what came before, you know, and so you, like being able to look back at that and see that progression uh, for me is fascinating. I love television history. I love looking back at the shows because I think it also reflects us back at ourselves. You know, I think that you can understand the culture um, by understanding the television shows and the stories that it tells, you know, I mean, it's essentially a study in folklore. Totally. Oh, yeah. Folklore. I love that. That's a great analogy to, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. ephemeral television that we got from like the 70s and 80s when they thought that like, this will never be on the air again. Or like, if it's in syndication, great for us. But they didn't like there was not a heavy investment mm-hmm. in, you know, in thinking about things and making it great. Uh, and sometimes like things squeaked through that were. Yeah were pretty amazing. And yeah, I, and I would recommend it to like anybody, just like you're saying that it's still genuinely funny. Like it was surprising. And we talk on the show a lot about like story perversity, we've called it, you know, like Buffy has it where you get mm-hmm. the unexpected, you know, movement of a scene or a line or, you know, me, you and everyone we know was like full of story perversity, like doing things the wrong way. And this show is like chock full of it. Like as mm-hmm. soon as that stuff started happening or the Shakespeare episode where the horse walks in with giant sunglasses on its face, I'm like, okay, I, I'm in for this. Like, <laughs> this is my thing. I love it. So I don't know. I, yeah. Anytime a story is like, yeah, whatever, we're just going to be crazy. Like that is charming to me. And, and, uh, if you like that kind of thing, I would recommend the show. Yeah. And so if you look in the show notes, we'll have a list of, uh, I think it's seven recommended episodes and some articles talking about moonlighting and its importance in the context of, of TV more broadly. Um, and so the list of seven episodes includes uh, the two-part pilot that was actually aired as a movie. Um, so I think th- that was also sort of revolutionary, right? Like, a lot of TV shows do that now where their first episode is either like bigger or some sort of like special feature. My understanding is that was like pretty rare back when Moonlighting came out. Yeah. At the time, the way a television show was done was that you would do a pilot episode, right? And in a pilot episode, like the weight that is on a pilot episode, you have to tell a story, you have to tell an episodic story, but you also have to introduce the world, build the world, uh, get your characters in place, show us who they are. Um, The kind of work that has to go into a pilot episode of anything is astounding. And to do that in, you know, a regular length episode is pretty tough. What happens more often now is that we don't have pilot episodes will have like a season order, you know, just based on the promise of it. So they will say, all right, you have 13 episodes. Um, back in the time frame that Moonlighting was working, it was a pilot episode. And then you would just do the pilot and then hope that it got picked up. And if it got picked up, you would be able to tell the rest of the story from there. You weren't able to plan for anything more than that. So it was kind of just a different system. We're, we're moving away from that system much, much more now. But at the time, that's the way it was done. Now this, he got, I believe, for the first season, a six 
episode mm-hmm. order. So they were able to say, all right, you know, do the first one as a movie, you know, give us, you know, the full, you know, two hour experience um, or hour and a half once you figure in commercials. Um, and, uh, and you can do that. And then we're going to do the next, you know, handful of episodes as well. So, I mean, it's my understanding that that was one of the first shows that got a, a multi episode order right off the bat and that allowed them to do something a little bit different a little bit bolder yeah very very cool um so on our episode list we have the pilot we have um some of lonnie's favorite episodes and then we have two episodes that are noted in the tv guide best tv episodes of all time uh a number 34 from 1997 um and that was the dream sequence always rings twice the one with the the black and white flashbacks um and then the number 48 episode from 2009 which is um the shakespeare episode that lonnie and i have been talking about it's (laughs) crazy it is it's really fantastic it's really good okay well i think that wraps us up for this week In this uh, past month, we've had a few people leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app, which we really appreciate. And as promised, for everybody who leaves a review, we write an individualized haiku. Okay, so today's first haiku goes out to Suzanne, or Suzaboos. Books and plays call you. Instead, you listen to us. This makes it worth it. We also got a review from Carrie, uh, Weedon Words. Ocean between us, friendship builds a bridge across. We're found family. And then finally, uh, we got a lovely review from Sarah L. When needed, you help. Courage of your convictions. Glad we stand with you. So thank you very much to Suzanne, Carrie, and Sarah L. for leaving us reviews. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Um, And for the rest of you guys, if you want to leave us a review, you'll get your own poem. And then coming up for uh, next month, for March, uh, we are going to have another guest. We're very excited about having Jan Moffat on the show from Way Too Seriously and from Clockworks a Legion podcast. She is going to be talking about uh, a book that you suggested to me uh, that I read to my girls. Yeah. So the, the book, it's actually a children's book. Uh, It's called the paperback princess and it is one of my favorite books. It's the only kid's book that I actually still own from my childhood. Um, And I really wanted to talk about it on the show and and then I found out uh, just from talking to Jan that she actually had a paper bag princess tattoo. And I was oh. like, damn, that is devotion to a book. Great. Um, <laughs> now I feel unqualified to talk about this. Uh, there's no way we can do an episode without uh, inviting you on. So we invited her on. Um, yeah, so so it's a great book, and I'm really excited to actually hear the story behind the tattoo because I don't know that yet. Um, I only know that she has it, and and yeah, it's uh it's my favorite book from when I was growing up. It's very cute. Uh, I've read it to both of my girls, and uh, we might even have some feedback from them maybe. Uh, 
So it will, we've never tried to do like a children's book before, but with like, we want to have, I'm really proud, you know, as far as our show goes is like the uh, kind of diversity of subjects that we have. So this will be interesting, I think, because the book, even though it's really short, uh, there's a lot going on with this book and Jan is so smart and uh, it's like your favorite book. So I think we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, and you you didn't really mention the topic of uh, Jan's podcast way too seriously um, that she does with her husband, Paul Moffat. Um, they talk about kids' movies. So I think Jan is definitely an expert at, at taking kids' media seriously um, and analyzing it in, in a really uh, in-depth and fun and interesting way. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite podcasts. Like Everybody should check that out. Um, and guys, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's the best way for us to find new listeners and to promote the show. Um, and thank you, Lonnie, again so much for talking with us today. Um, can you tell our listeners where to find you on the very <laughs> small chance that they don't already know? <laughs> <laughs> they haven't already found. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me here. It was so much fun to talk about moonlighting with you guys. Absolute blast. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Um, anybody who wants to find me can find me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich. You can find my novels at LonnieDianeRich.com. And you can find my podcasting at Chipperish.com. And we will have links to all that in the show notes. And I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast and visit our website at hgstorycast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Thanks so much, guys. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs>